This morning, we are continuing our conversation on legacy and a legacy leaving. So a legacy is really just uh, the context of life that we are going to leave behind for the next individual, for the next generation, for those people who are coming up after us. What kind of life are we helping to, uh, for them to live by the context that we shape, by the context that we create, by the environment that we make for them to live their life in? It's kind of like we are all sowing seeds into a garden. We all have seeds uh, that we are sowing, and somebody else is going to harvest that garden. They could be seeds of hatred and anger and sorrow and bitterness. Somebody else is going to harvest that garden of hatred and anger and sorrow and bitterness. They could be seeds of joy and, and an opportunity for, for, for dreaming and for thriving, and then somebody else is going to reap that garden as well. And so really, what kind of legacy are we going to leave behind as individuals? But the thing is, legacies are left by more than just individuals, right? Corporations, industries, governments, entire societies leave legacies. They leave context for other people to leave behind as well. And even more so, perhaps, an organization or an industry will leave behind even a greater legacy, perhaps, than any single individual because they have that much more clout over the direction the society takes. They can help determine the direction that society takes. Let me give you one example. Shortly after World War II, the government, alongside all the corporations who were feeding the government, they adopted a solution to the economic problem that they were having. This is the early 1950s. The, the, the world was just reeling from the, the cost of the war, and they were trying to figure out how to survive, how to get the economy back on track. And so they, they reached out to this guy named, named Victor Lebeau. He was an economist, and here was the solution that Victor Lebeau proposed. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make what? What does that say? Consumption. This is back in the 1950s, early 1950s. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals. That we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. So, Victor, how do you propose that we do that? Well, he continues. We need things used, burned up, replaced and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. So the American economy's ultimate purpose is to produce more consumer goods. And so what our society has elevated consumption above healthcare and education and safe transportation and global sustainability and justice. Consumption is at the very heart of what it means to be an American. And the way corporations got us to agree to this idea, that I think we all probably kind of like cringe at a little bit, the way that corporations got us to agree to this was by decreasing the quality of those consumer goods so they'll wear down faster, break faster, and eventually have to be replaced quicker. The questions corporations ask is, how quickly can we make stuff break but still leave consumers with enough faith in the product So they'll go back and purchase a new one when that product does, in fact, break. And so, I don't know, is 10 years a long enough life cycle for a refrigerator? Ask your grandparents. (laughs) Ask your grandparents how long their refrigerators last. And you'll know that this is very much indeed true. 
But the real problem, isn't it? And the real problem, yes, our stuff breaks at an ever-increasing rate, right? You get that, right? We all get that. They're the the comp- corporations, the industries, the engineers are actually making our things to break faster, so they'll wear down faster. We have to go buy more, right? They drive this consumption cycle over and over. But isn't the real problem that I just don't like my white refrigerator? <laughs> isn't it the real problem in me that I want a stainless refrigerator? I just don't like the freezer being on the top. I would really prefer the freezer to be on the bottom. Isn't that the real issue? You know, this is also driven by the corporations. You know that each year we see 3,000 advertisements, every day, I'm sorry, not every year, every day we see 3,000 advertisements constantly speaking to us, telling us that what we have isn't good enough and what we have isn't enough and there is the latest and there is the greatest and something else is better than what we currently have. And so, hey, take what is perfectly good and working perfectly fine, but throw it in the trash, discard it, go by the one that you like, go by the bigger, go by the better, go by the faster. Isn't that true as well? How often do we go to our clothes and we say, you know what, these are last year's styles. Yeah, they fit fine. Yes, they keep me warm in the cold, but you know what, they're last year's styles. So I'm just going to take all these clothes, box them up, throw them in the thrift store. I'm going to go buy and consume more clothing. How often do we look at our phones and we say, you know what, my iPhone 6, yeah, it's working just fine, but that iPhone 10, $1,000, come on. We do this all the time, don't we? It's not just that things are wearing down. It's not just that things are breaking at an ever-increasing rate. It's actually that we're not satisfied with what we have. And the companies know this as well. And so they're constantly dangling us before us new things. And we go and we buy and we consume. And so did you guys know that only 1% of what we purchase is still in use six months after we purchase it? How horrible is that? But this is how the economy stays afloat. In order for this consumption to take place and these goods to be produced, we've had to basically trash the planet, enslave millions of laborers, most of whom are in third world countries, in order to produce these products for us. We then take what we purchased and trash 99% of it within six months. And each person, every single day, produces four and a half pounds of trash. That's doubled in the last 30 years. We've doubled the amount of trash that we make as a society in the last 30 years. We throw all of the stuff full of toxins and pollutants in landfills or incinerators, which pollute then the earth and the sky. Sometimes we just throw them out of our car window and they sit on the side of the road, which will eventually make their way into river systems, which will eventually make their way down into the ocean. Let's not even get into the horrible ocean statistics. We are polluting our society, and this whole process started by Western corporations and industries rebounding after a war, asking themselves, how do we ramp up an economy? And isn't this the legacy that has been left for us? Isn't this the context for life that we're living in now? And not only are we continuing this legacy for future generations, but we are accelerating that legacy for future generations. The capitalistic, consumer-based society and its corporations are leaving behind a legacy of a destroyed earth and a dissatisfied soul. Now, there are a lot, of course, uh, corporations that are working to improve the environment, improve working conditions, and make the world a better place. So I'm not just trying to harp on all the corporations that aren't doing that. But everyone in every organization, for the good or the bad, leaves a legacy, leaves a context for the next generation to live within. It's not just about how we're going to be remembered. It's very much about the context for life that we are creating for other people. And that very much includes us this organization, Restoration Church, this corporate body. 
But there's one caveat I want to address really quickly that's going to help propel our conversation this morning on leaving a legacy as a corporate identity. And that is this, the difference between longevity and legacy. Now, these aren't mutually exclusive. Um, in, in fact, longevity assists in legacy leaving. If you think about it, the longer that we're around as a church body, um, the greater our legacy, the potential at least for the, the greater legacy that we live, uh, that we leave. It's when longevity becomes the goal that our legacy turns sour. When longevity becomes the goal, then you begin to fall off your legacy horse. You see, longevity is really just about surviving. If you think about it, if you want to boil that term longevity into a single term, it's, it's about surviving. And it's so sad, but this is a lot of church's primary goal. If I can just get another week, if we can just make it another year, if we can just make it another season, this is our goal, longevity. Survival is our goal, because here's why. In a country where 3,700 churches closed their doors in 2017, it makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense that a, a church would, would focus on surviving if 3,700 churches in America alone closed their doors last year? It doesn't make it right, but maybe you can see why a lot of churches would focus on that. In a country where 80% of Americans no longer attend church on Sundays, Can't you see why a lot of churches would focus on survival as their primary goal? It doesn't make it right, but it maybe justifies it a little bit. Church is becoming less and less valuable in our society. Every year, more than half of all churches in America add not one new person. And for those churches that are growing, 75% of church growth in America is transplant growth. And what I mean by that is, One of those 3,700 churches closed their doors. Uh, Yeah, they were just a few miles down the road from us, and they lost 40 people. These 40 people now have to find a new church home. And so, great, you know, we grew by five people. Well, we just transplanted their population into ours. That is how the church is growing in America for the most part. 75% of American church growth is transplant growth. People stop going to that church and they decide to come to our church. And so it's not that the average church is actually reaching, you know, the the lost, quote-unquote. It's not that the average church is actually reaching its community with the gospel. We're just taking people from other churches who already know about Jesus. You know that each year, three million more previous churchgoers enter the ranks of the religiously unaffiliated. The vast majority of these three million people are 18-year-olds who are no longer under the forced religion of their parents. I'm now free. I'm off to college. I don't have to do what my parents tell me to do anymore. And so, you know what? I'm not going to go to church anymore because I never saw the value in it. Now, you could say there's a silver lining to all this. In the fact that last year in 2017, 4,000 churches opened their doors. That's something to be excited about, right? But unfortunately, that silver lining turns dark very, very quickly as you look at the stats. There have been a lot of, um, a lot of stats that have been collected over the last 20 years regarding a lot of these churches. Every year, 4,000 churches open their doors in America, roughly 4,000. But over the last 20 years, there's an indication that 40 of those will close by the end of 2018. And by 2022, 80% of them will be closed. And of the 20% that will make it past the first five years, 80% won't make it past the second five. And so let me give you some actual numbers here. 4,000 churches opened in 2017. 
By the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, there will be 2,400 of those churches that are still operating. By 2022, 800 of those 4,000 will still be operating. And by 2026, just 10 years after these 4,000 churches started, only 160 of them will still be operating. So we're approaching our fifth birthday as a church. (laughs) We're approaching our fifth birthday in October of 2018. We will turn five, and so we are... Uh, I'm just going to assume that we're still going to be open in October, okay? I'm just going to make that assumption for you guys. I don't plan to go anywhere. I hope you guys don't plan to go anywhere. I just continue to hope that God continues to work through uh, restoration and the people here. Um, so we'll be thriving in October. So we will be in that 800 range. So that's something to be excited about for us, right? Um, I, was tell- I, was, I was sharing these stats with Emily, my wife, uh, on Friday night over dinner. And, um, and she was like, you know what, if I knew... Seven years ago, when we, were, when we were thinking about Restoration Church, if I knew these stats, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, you know what? We were just excited about Jesus, and we wanted to go bring Jesus to a region. And uh, we didn't even know this region. We were like, Jesus, 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 we can do this, right? So, and maybe that's one of the reasons why we're still in one of those 800, is that there's a, there's a belief and a calling and an excitement about Jesus at Restoration Church. Um, but you can, make, you, you, you can understand, right, all of these horrible, saddening statistics that I just shared with you, you can understand why a lot of churches would say, survival is my goal. At the end of the day, if I can just survive as a church, if we can just get through another year, if we can get, convince our people to give us enough money so that we can survive one more year, then that's great. You can understand why that would be the case. And so, of course, looking at all these stats and, and seeing all how sad it is and, and, and whatnot, there, there's so many, um, you know, church experts, people who have studied churches for a long time. I've written a lot of books on church growth and church success and how to, how to beat, you know, this curb, how to be one of the 160. There are a lot of church books out there, a lot of growth books, a lot of success books, a lot of avoiding failure books and articles and, uh, you know, every, every, literally, like every day on social media, I constantly go like, here's the five things you need to do to grow your church. Or here's the seven things you need to avoid if you want to, you know, if you don't want to fail, if you don't want to be, you know, categorized into the, the 3,840 churches that aren't going to make it. Every day I get these. And so, and so I, I peruse through some of them every now and then, uh, trying to see what they're saying. And some of, it's, some of it's good and some of it's fascinating. But what I really find fascinating and really more than a little irritating about really universally across the board, all of these conversations, is the almost complete overshadowing of this very simple fact that Christ builds his church. There's no mention of Jesus in any of these articles. There's no mention of Jesus in any of these you know, strategies on how to grow your church. There's none, none of these conversations about Jesus on, on how to succeed or how to avoid failure. But Christ builds his church. There are a million strategies and books about what to stay away from, and rarely does anybody mention Jesus as a f- central component of what the church is about. So, so many churches' strategies have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, but what do you have, what do you have in a church that doesn't have Jesus at the center of it? I mean, if you claim that you're a church, but you don't have Jesus at the center of it, then what are you? You know, what, what do you have? At the, at the least, I think that you have an event center, or you have a religious organization, right? Jesus is just an ornamental feature that we talk about from time to time. He is not the, the center of what we do or what we're about. And so what do you have? Well, you have an event center, you have a, a religious organization. But let me say this again, as I've said so many times. 
that what a religious organization and what a religious center offers the community is absolutely no different than what anybody searching, searching, deeply searching for something could find at a bar stool. What a religious organization, a religious center provides a community is absolutely no different than what anybody in our community who is searching could find in the shopping mall through some shopping therapy. Absolutely nothing. Religious centers do not provide anything to the world that the world cannot find in a million other places. See, religion is just that thing that we do to fix the innate problem that we all know we have. We talk about this a lot. Everybody's religious. Everybody is religious, right? We all recognize that there's a problem within us, and so what do we do? We lie, and we cheat, and we blame shift, and we drink, and we poke, and we binge, and we look the other way, and we run and hide. We do any sorts of a million things, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. We try, and we try, and we try, but it doesn't work. See, without Jesus at the center of our movement, if we do not live and breathe and find our being in Jesus, if he is not our way and our truth and our life, if he is not the author and the perfecter of our faith, if he is not the the one that we are chasing after and running towards and tracking down. And we don't have a church. We might have an event center. We might have a religious system, but we do not have a church. And what we offer will be short-lived and it will be unimpactful. See, Christ builds his church. So in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Peter comes along and Peter is the first person of all the people that he has been walking around with, to stand up and boldly say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are God's anointed one. And in this proclamation, Jesus stands and says, Peter, you are right. You are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Who's going to build the church? I will build my church. Jesus will build his church. Jesus builds the church. Now, Peter has just declared Jesus the Messiah. And so this rock that Jesus is referring to is this proclamation. It's this declaration of Jesus' Messiahship, Jesus' Lordship. It's the proclamation of the apostolic word that Christ is going to build his church upon. And so what I want to drive home here, and this morning, is the triumphant authority of this promise that Jesus will build his church. World missions and church missions is ultimately dependent not on human wisdom and human perseverance and human creativity, but God's perseverance and creativity and God's work. We are dependent people upon God to build his church, upon Jesus to build his church. It is not through what we accomplish. And so it is not a pastor that builds the church. It's not missionaries who build the church. It is Jesus who builds his church. And so if Jesus builds his church on his proclaimed word, then shouldn't Jesus and his proclaimed word be at the very center of everything that we do? I'm going to ask that again. If Jesus builds his church on his proclaimed word, shouldn't Jesus and his proclaimed word be at the center of everything that we do? Thank you, yes. That ultimately we're not about the events and the technology and the screens and the apps and the, you know, the offerings that we offer. Like These are all really, really good. But these are all tools and these are all pathways to a better relationship and a further relationship with Jesus. Everything that we do are tools to help us proclaim Jesus and to help you know Jesus more. But we're a church, right? And for some reason, more churches are failing than are succeeding. And so for so many churches, survival and the modern means to survival have become the goal. You know, I was recently talking with a mentor friend of mine and he grew up in Levittown. He lives up in Doylestown now, but he grew up in Levittown. 
And he's so very interested then in the life of Restoration Church. He sees what God is doing here and he's excited about it. And so he wants to, to, to mentor me and help in whatever way that he possibly can to help Restoration Church succeed. And so in this email conversation back and forth uh, that we were having, he says that I, I hope that you guys can succeed and I want to pour into you any resources that I can because few have done so in the past, is how we concluded. Few have done so in the past. Few churches, in other words, have succeeded in Levittown. And now I'm not from around here, so I don't entirely know if that's true or not, but he grew up here, and that's his experience. Few have succeeded before. He watched throughout his entire life, growing up uh, all the way into adulthood, his entire life, between the river uh, to the east and to the south, and 95 to the west, and Route 1 to the north, if you want to give that, you know, generically our geographical region. He saw that church after church after church closed their doors down or they stalled in effective ministry. It's just what he experienced, what he witnessed. This region, he would say, is spiritually depressed, spiritually apathetic, or even worse, spiritually disenfranchised. We live like in a spiritual vacuum. That's kind of how he, he was describing it. See, too many people have had a bad taste in their mouth about the church and what the church is about. Because I think on a macro level, if you think about it, the church isn't about Jesus any longer. The church is about, fill in the gap for me, anybody? Stuff. Stuff. Like what you can buy with money. The church is about money. Go ask anybody in the street, what's your procession of the church? What are they going to say? Money hungry. We want your money. Why isn't Jesus at the center? Why on a macro level, when we go to our community and we ask, what is the church about? They would say money. They would say stuff. Why wouldn't anybody, hardly anybody, say Jesus? Because the church has done a really bad job at being the church. For generations, the church has done a bad job at being the church. And I'm not saying that every church is like that. There are really phenomenal churches. I'm just saying at a macro level, we live in a disenfranchised, spiritual vacuum. And so we have an opportunity before us, right? My friend, um, not this friend, but a different friend, recently uh, shared with me an anecdote, and it was uh, a story about how, how two different shoe companies in America wanted to expand into Africa. And so they sent representatives of the shoe company into Africa, and, and these two representatives uh, called back home with two different perspectives on the situation there. One, one, one called back home, and he said, terrible, terrible news. Nobody wears shoes in Africa. And the other person called back home, and he said, phenomenal news. Nobody wears shoes in Africa. And so what's our perspective, you know, as a church? What's our perspective on what some have said is a spiritual vacuum? Are we going to look at the, at the, the community that we're in and we're going to say, bad news, nobody cares here? Or are we going to say, great news, nobody knows of Jesus here? What's our perspective going to be? Now, you need to know that I am a good news kind of leader. And so I'm kind of like, phenomenal news. Like, spiritual vacuums don't intimidate me. Like, I just see an incredible, incredible field that needs to be harvested before us. Like, there are so many people, our neighbors, our coworkers, our community that needs to hear of the gospel of Jesus. And so we have an incredible opportunity. Spiritual vacuums don't intimidate me. They excite me. Because I believe that the gospel is more powerful than any intimidation. 
And so I think we're only going to fail, Restoration Church is only going to fail, if we make survival our goal. If we settle for survival and we throw Jesus to the, to the sidelines and we say, yeah, tangentially we're about Jesus, he's not the core of who we are, but yeah, you know, we talk about him from time to time. If we settle for survival, then we are going to fail. But let's dream about the world that we want to help shape and leave behind for the next generation. Let's dream about what God could do and is doing here at Restoration Church and how our community will be different because we exist and what our reputation is going to be and how people are going to know who Jesus is because of what we're doing. See, a legacy isn't just about how we're going to be remembered. It's so much bigger than that. It's about the context for life that we are going to leave behind. And so did I have fun while I was at Restoration Church? Yeah, I had fun. But more importantly, I met Jesus there. And I experienced life change there. And I had abundant life handed to me there. And so certainly we can personalize this, right? I mean, think about your own life for just a really brief moment. Think about your life. Is your life different because we exist? Thank you. Are you di- is your life different because we exist? Like, these aren't hypotheticals, friends. All right, I'm asking redundant que- rhetorical questions this morning. Is your life different because Restoration Church exists? How then has your, Im- your household been impacted because your life is different? How then has your workplace been impacted because your life is different? How then has your interactions with the random people you come across, you know, on a day-to-day basis been impacted because your life is different? Isn't that legacy? Aren't we developing a context for you to live your life in? Aren't we developing a context for your household to live your life in? And that is our hope that this would just be multiplied and multiplied throughout our entire region. So one person redirects their heart and then they enter into their circle of influence. And they have a story to share, right? I mean, a redirected heart is one that has been forgiven and experienced grace and experienced mercy and experienced the, the, the beauty of being saved. And, and then you enter into a, a context, a circle of influence where you have people now who are in need of forgiveness and need of mercy and need of grace and need of salvation. You say, wow, you know what? I have a beautiful story to share with you. And then these people experience life change and then they enter into their different circles of conflict, circle, circle of influence, and they share what they've experienced too and see how the trickle effect keeps kind of multiplying and working its way through an entire community of people? If, if you are willing and available to start it. And so think about your own circles of influence for a moment. Who needs to hear a message of forgiveness? Do you guys know anybody in your own circle of influence who needs a message of forgiveness? Then what are you doing? What are you doing? Maybe you are trying, and that's beautiful, because not everyone's going to receive forgiveness, right? Do you know anybody in your circle of influence who needs a message of grace and of mercy? How about a message of worth, unconditional love? And what are you doing? Let's be a people who are sharing our stories. Let's be a people who are speaking life into our circles of influence. This isn't hypothetical. This is real. And my friends, you have a story to share. So at the end of the day, our goal is, as a corporate body is to know God and to make him known. Maybe you are familiar with this as our mission statement. And the reason this is our goal is largely because this is Jesus' final prayer to his father. This is all t- taken out of Jesus' final conversation with his father uh, before he's carted off to be crucified. He said this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So our goal is in part, yes, salvation. But salvation isn't this thing that happens when you die. It is an abundant life that begins now that persists and carries with you into 
eternity. And so we're not all about a disjointed spirituality here. We're not trying to, to help you understand that, hey, Sunday can be a Jesus day for you, but the rest of the week is yours. We're not trying to help you create a disjointed spirituality where, where you don't have to persist in your following Jesus all throughout your week. If you want the abundant sal- sal- salvation, the abundant life that comes with salvation, then it is a constant pursuit of Jesus, that Jesus is the center of your being and you're chasing after him, you're running him down. Everything that you do is about him and he is influencing everything that you do. Or more precisely, being an intimate and growing relationship with God. This is what we're about, that God's love would pour into us and then we would let that love pour out onto the world. We would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We would love our neighbor as ourselves. And so as we know God, we make God known. And Jesus summarizes this prayer by saying this, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And so Jesus is all about what he has come to accomplish in this section. I have come and I have accomplished what you have sent me to do. I have made you known. And so the reason that our mission is to know God and to make him known is because that was Jesus' mission as well. And so we're just carrying that mission as a corporate body. We're just enhancing it as best that we can. And so know God and to make him known because this is what Jesus has called his church to do. And so everything that we do should, in theory and practice, be about increasing our relationship with God and then helping those within our circles and influence begin a relationship with God. There, in other words, is a discipling paradigm, and there's also a missional paradigm to everything that we do. Discipleship is about our love for God, growing to be more like God, knowing God, and mission is our outward loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor. So many think, well, you know, I can be a disciple on Sundays, but I don't need to live a missional life, or I can just do mission, but I can have a disjointed spirituality. I don't really know, need to know a lot about who Jesus is or know a lot about who God is. I can just go on mission. But really, the life that we are calling, that we are being called to live, and the life that I'm encouraging you to live is really a woven fabric of these two, a back and forth. That is, you are knowing God through his word and being in community with others, that that inspires you to go on mission and share all that you've learned and that as you are on mission with others then you have an appetite and a thirst to know more of who God is and then as you know more of who God is that you have an inspiration to go and to share what you have learned and as you are sharing what you have learned you have a thirst and an appetite to know more of who God is see how the woven effect works and this is growth this is spiritual growth in a nutshell this is the means also by which we as a corporate body are going to leave a legacy and have an impact on our community. But if leaving a legacy takes intention and planning and strategy, then we need goals. And we need a strategic course by which we are to take. So if you were with us about a year ago, we started a conversation on BHAGs, Big Hairy Audacious Goals. I'm going to run down these really quick for you because um, it's, it's kind of a refresher of, of what we're hoping to accomplish, um, but hopefully it's going to help you get involved um, a little more as well if you're not currently involved. And so the, we boil down our, our big, hairy, audacious goals uh, to six um, components. Uh, we believe, we, as we were praying, um, that God had bigger dreams for Restoration Church than we had for ourselves. And so these are what were kind of born from our conversations with God. We wanted to be in a mission-oriented church. A mission-oriented church that making disciples through outward movements. We wanted the trajectory of our movement to be increasingly outward. And so think for a moment how most churches do outreaches, right? They throw a big festival and we're, we've been known for our festivals, you know. Um, 
most churches will throw a big festival, they'll host an event on their church property, and they'll say, hey, world, come to us. Now think for a moment, just, just really quickly, think for a moment, if God would have taken that strategy as his means to saving the world. All right, guys, I got this great Savior up in heaven. If you can just get to him, then you can be saved. Come to us, in other words. This come to us mentality, we wanted to reverse this to be an outward missional movement. And so we wanted the focus of our, of our ministry to be outward rather than inward. And so we decentralized a church and what we do. And so this is why we have men's groups not meeting here. We do have some meeting here, but we have a men's group meeting at Chili's. This is why we have a, a mom's group meeting in a diner. It starts this week, by the way. Picks up again this week. This is why we have a, a seniors group meeting in a restaurant. This is why we go out into the world to show the world what you know, Christian community looks like. They're going to see us in prayer together. They're going to see us studying the Word. They're going to hear the conversations that we're having. This is why we go out. And this is why this past December we, we had a day of service where, where we asked you and your neighbor, what do your neighbors need us to do for them? Yeah, we did some work around the church too because that's always a need, right? But like we asked you, what do your neighbors need? And then we sent teams out to your neighbors and we served your neighbors. And then we gathered 28 cookie baskets from all you people who made cookies over the holiday season. We went out into organizations, and we blessed organizations through doing that. This is why we had a giving tree that, that we gave gift cards and presents to local families, and we went out and knocked on their door and said, here is a gift for you this Christmas. And this is why we collected almost $600 in quarters, and we went out to laundromats, and we paid for laundry. And this is why this summer we're going to do things like this again. And we're going to provide summer block parties and do other things that we go out and we meet your neighbors. Instead of just saying, hey, our doors are open, why aren't you coming to us? The church doors are open, we're here on Sunday, every Sunday we're here, come in. We need to go out into the world. The next goal that we had was to be a people-oriented culture, develop a people-oriented culture where we are making disciples through storytelling. And so we're developing clear discipleship pathways, enhancing community groups, and developing mentorships for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, that we would pour into individuals who are just starting their relationship with Jesus, so there'd be mentorship opportunities. And as we continue to grow, you would continue to invite others then into that same journey that you're going on. And so we're developing an invitational culture, and really what this means is that you would learn to tell your story. As I've already addressed, that if you've experienced forgiveness through Jesus Christ, then you would in turn share that story of forgiveness with somebody who needs to hear it. As you see people who are hurting and broken and in need of restoration, you would share with them how you've been healed and how you've been put back together, how you've been restored. Storytelling culture. And growth, then, isn't just for growth's sake, right? Because in theory, as we are inviting people into the life of Christ and you are inviting people into the community of Restoration Church to grow here, Growth isn't for growth's sake, but it's for the sake of more impact. It's for more impact. As we have more people here, in theory, there are more circles of influences to impact. And so we want to grow as a church, not just so that we have a bigger church, but because we have a greater impact in our community. And so invitational culture. Isn't it true, you guys, that when you experience something phenomenal, isn't one of the very first things you do is to go tell a friend about it? You know, Jesus talked about this in his parable of the prodigal son just before it. He had this story about this woman who had lost a coin. And she went and she found that coin. And the first thing she did was she called up all of her friends. She said, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. Isn't that true that when something, experience, uh, something amazing happens, the first thing we do is to go share it with others? 
And so, how many of you are experiencing the life of Christ and excited about it, and you're sharing it with others? And what are the means by we're able to do that? I'm going to invite my friend Kelly forward. She's going to share a little bit about her story of how someone shared something exciting in their life and how it impacted her. So please, say hi to Kelly for me. Good morning. So Kelly, yes. Um, we're kind of talking about the, the opportunities we have to share stories. Um, but your story is, isn't beginning with Restoration Church. So tell us a little bit before we get into that part of it, what your life was like prior to Restoration Church. Sure. So I grew up not too far from here. Um, My parents still live in the same house and they still go to the same church. Um, We went to church as a family every week and um, there was no welcoming sense to it. Um, I know this is horrible, but I always equated it to prison. Like you get in, you do your time and you get out. Like we did not know anybody that went to church with us. The only people we knew were the people that lived on my parents' street. Um, so the older I got, the less I went, and I eventually became a cheester person. And if you don't know what that cheester. means, yeah, Christmas and Easter is wherever I would go. That was it. I mean, um, it's not good. It's just, yeah, it's funny. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I eventually stopped going to church altogether. And the only reason I came back to church was um, when I had my son five years ago, I wanted him to know Jesus. And I knew I couldn't do that by myself. So we went back to church and it was the same sort of thing. Um, it was, you know, there was no, there wasn't any festivals there. there was, it just wasn't welcoming. Um, when you have a kid in, in that church, you have to sit all the way in the back in the cr- what's called the cry room. And it's, it's a um, soundproof room where you can't bother other people. Um, so I just never felt like family connected. And I, I just, it was not for us. Um, so we started going less and less and less and cheester again and then nothing at all. Right, right. Um, so you found out about restoration then. Um, and how had, did that happen? We had been to some of the festivals here. Okay. We went to the Easter extravaganza and the um, Family Fun Festival. Okay. And then one of my friends, Miss Alicia, week after week would post on Facebook, my <laughs> is. church is the best. My church is so phenomenal. Everyone loves this place. Like, you need to come. And she would invite people every week, come and sit with me. And I was like, Mm-mm, I'm, I'm sorry. People don't love the people church. People do right. not like to yes. go to church. It just does not happen. Um, so I would constantly message her, and I'd ask her all these questions. And she kept inviting me. And I was like, mm, I would make excuse after excuse right. why I couldn't go. And then she posted one week that she was speaking about her experiences here, and she was kind of nervous and said, like, would anybody come and just sit in the audience? So I was like, you know what? I can do that. I'll sit in the very back, and that's, that's going to be it. And I'm just going to support my friend. That's it. So I came that first week, and I don't know how you knew what I needed to hear, <laughs> but I think that you were talking right to me, and I did one of these. Like I just looked around like, did, did she tell him? <laughs> what, what, like, I, I just, I didn't know. So we kept coming. Um, and one thing I forgot to mention at, at our last church, um, it was either Christmas or Easter. My husband fell asleep at church and was snoring so loudly. I had to shake him to wake him up. Like that is not a joke. So when we started coming here, he was like, oh my gosh, I'm not falling asleep. And this pastor is exciting and he's excited about Jesus. And we wanted to have our child know about Jesus and this is perfect because they have 
the kids ministry. So I wanted to sign him up for vacation Bible school. So we signed him up in the summer. And through that, I was like, this, this kid is not going to go on his own. So I started volunteering in kids ministry. Um, so now he loves kids ministry and he cannot wait to go downstairs. He keeps talking about church camp and Mm -hmm. when is that going to happen again? And can I go back on Sunday? And I love that I have become um, involved more with groups, and I've made some friends, and it's just, it's an awesome thing. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah, so you find yourself through that means, um, through a friend like Alicia, mm-hmm. um, inviting you to a place like this, through our kids' ministry, uh, through the various groups. These are all tools, remember, uh, to help you chase after Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so how, how are things um, now for you? I mean, you said you're, you're very involved in groups and serving. Yep, um, and I, I love, too, that, like, we didn't really talk about Jesus as much at home, yeah. but now it's more of our conversation, and my, my son is five, so he doesn't always get it, but, like, sometimes he tells me, oh, Batman died on the cross, <laughs> but we're talking about it, and I feel like we're getting there, so you're, it's, you're getting there. it's hey. a step. Thank you, that's right, that's absolutely right, yes. So, <laughs> Thank yes. you so much. Yes. Thank you. That's perfect. So really, I mean, the point is that, um, that social media and inviting um, and t- sharing your story about your love, not so much of Restoration Church, right? We, we, we gather as a community, yes, but Jesus, Jesus, like it, it, you, you have no idea who it's going to reach. You have no idea who it's going to touch. You have no idea who's going to see your social media posts and say, wow, you know, maybe I do need to go to that place and find out what they're experiencing. And so um, the point of the moral, the moral of the story, more social media chatter, I guess, is maybe... That Alicia's awesome. That's, that's always true. Yes, of course, Alicia. Um, there are four other goals. I really, I'm just going to buzz through really, really quickly um, for you. Uh, we have a culture-oriented goal that we would look at our community um, and what our community lacks and that we would meet our community where it's at. And there are two things that I've mentioned so many times that our community desperately lacks, and that is a coffee shop and that is an indoor play facility for our children. <laughs> And so um, to move on to the next goal, a building-oriented goal is that we would have a, a building that functions as a common ground, not just for church people, but for all of the community. That we'd be a natural draw to the community. We would make disciples through the creative and practical use of our space. And so when I say that, I don't necessarily mean this space, though we certainly need to, to do that, but I mean a future space that I believe God is leading us towards someday in the future. That it would be a common draw, not just for church people, but it would be a common draw for all of the community to come and to interact with church people, or Jesus people, to be more specific. We need a a staff-oriented goal would be that we would have a staff, and again, we made these a year ago, and we we fulfilled some of these already, Um, a staff-oriented goal that we are making disciples through training and calling, and so we don't have a staff that is just doing jobs for the sake of doing jobs, but we have a staff that really believes in what they're doing, and they feel called to what they're doing, and a new staff position would be um, hopefully someone to help us continue to make disciples, an associate pastor of some sort, um, to help us continue to do that. And then we had a financial-oriented goal that we would um, be sufficiently um, funded through the generosity of this body, where generosity would become a, a cornerstone of what we're doing, um, not only so that we're sufficiently funded to do the work God is doing, but that we would even be able to increase so that we can dream about what God would be doing here. And so these are all some of the goals that we had been discussing, um, but really the point of all this is that we would be leaving a legacy, right? We make all of these goals, not for the sake of making gold because it's what corporations and industries do, but because we want to leave a legacy. We want to be impactful within our 
community. And so we want to strategize how to best do that. If you think for a moment um, about how legacy, legacy works, um, I think of Grace Point, our, our mother church. They're the church that funded us to begin with. They raised $250,000. They gave sacrificially six years ago. Uh, they, they had been raising that money for two years, but I mean, they, they, they said, here is your money to start Restoration Church. They gave us 80 people from Grace Point. They sacrificed what was, they could have done any number of things with that, but they decided we want to build a legacy. We want to help another church impact a community within our region. And so multiplication is also part of our dreams as well. Multiplication is not only on the individual level. We've talked about that a lot, right? How you can leave a legacy through you sharing your story and you impacting a circle of influence who in turn will share their story and impact a circle of influence. But on a macro level as well, through Restoration Church, we want to multiply as well. We want to help more churches like us who are reaching their community with the gospel exist within our community. So over the next several years, we hope that we can multiply in any number of ways so that a legacy of faith might develop here in Levittown, that the spiritual vacuum would no longer be filled with a bunch of religious people who are turning to all sorts of other things to meet their needs, but a region that is turning to Jesus to come alive. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you're doing here. We thank you for who you are, Father. We thank you for how you have called us, Father. And I just pray that you continue to, to work in us and to work in our midst, to call us, Father, and to, and to energize us, to inspire us, to get us excited about what you could do and what you are doing in this region through Restoration Church and through individuals. We are dependent on you, Father, for you build your church. We pray all this in your name. Amen.